Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. We're joined today by award-winning documentary filmmaker Simon Lorraine Wilmot, He's best known for his first feature documentary film, The Distant Barking of Dogs, a multiple award-winning film that was also shortlisted for Academy Award consideration in 2019, and it also won a Peabody Award. Simon is here today to talk about his latest documentary film, A House Made of Splinters. In this film, Simon documents a rundown halfway house in Ukraine that houses some of the country's most vulnerable children cramped between precarious homes and the foster care system. He documents the fast disappearing childhoods of these young people amidst the ever worsening political strife with great intimacy and access. The film again is called A House Made of Splinters. It is screening at the Doc NYC Film Festival this week and next it's also on their virtual platform. If you want to watch it, you can do that as well. We're honored to have back with us on the program, Simon Lorang Wilmot. Simon, welcome back to Film School Radio. Thanks a lot, Mike. Like the distant barking of dogs, A House Made of Splinters was filmed in eastern Ukraine. How far, how close in proximity were these two different locations? The distant backing of dog took place uh, near Mariupol in the southern parts of the then front line of the wall, whereas uh, Lysychansk, where I'm, I shot uh, a house made of splinters, is located uh, in the northern parts of the front line of the wall. Actually, Lysychansk now is uh, in the Russian-controlled areas, and it's one of the cities that has been most contested with the most heavy fighting, like 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 Mariupol. Yeah, like Mariupol, we've become that's become a familiar name to all of us. We will get into that later. I would like to ask you sort of the state of things in Ukraine, but we'll but before we go there, how did you find the place? How did you find this particular half, halfway house? It was actually because of uh, my previous film, The Distant Barking of Dogs. For those of you who don't know it, it's a film about an eight-year-old boy who's growing up with his grandma right on the front line of the wall. Uh, and I followed their lives for roughly one and a half years. And during that time, obviously, I got super close to this family and they became very dear to me. And But in the later parts of the shooting of the film, the grandma gets really uh, ill. She has two heart infects. Uh, and I was worried that she would actually, um, she might um, pass on. And that kind of rose the immediate question of what will happen to this young boy if there's no one left to take care of him. Luckily, she didn't, and she's still going strong. I saw her a month ago. But once that film was done and all of the festival life and everything was through, the question kept on resurfacing in my mind, you know, what actually would happen to kids? And is this a problem along the front line that the families are not able to take care of them? So I asked my amazing assistant director, Asad Safarov, to see if he could just dig a little into it. And very quickly thereafter, he he called me and said, they're ready for you in the northern parts of the front line. The civil administration, they saw your film and they want to show you. Uh, Will you come? And I said, of course. And we went there, he and I, 
and they were very welcoming and they kind of took us on a on a tour the orphanage so to speak and most of the of the state orphanages we saw on that tour were very big uh, and they were more institutionalized so they were very good at taking care of the kids physical needs but maybe not so good at taking care of their emotional needs for me that became too bleak of a story to make but then one of the last days i went to uh, margarita's uh, shelter and the second i opened that door it was like something completely different you know the yeah it was small and it was worn out but it has children's drawings on the walls the the kids were running around and screaming and laughing and in one room there was a beautiful elderly lady trying to teach some kids um, piano even though she probably couldn't play really well herself and at the end of the hallway i saw what i would later come to know uh, margarita and she was hugging two kids while she was shouting you know at some parent in the phone and there was so much humanity and and so much uh, warmth or comfort. I can't really explain it, but I got really curious as to what is it that makes this place so special? And is this a, a, a one-time uh, thing because I'm here or I'm just lucky? Or is it this like this most of the time? And it turned out that it was, and that's why I decided to stay and 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 see if I could make a film from there. Well, we're better for that, that you did decide to hang around and and, and document these kids. There are about, I'd say, four different kids that we spend more time with over the course of the film. Uh, yeah. Kolya, Sasha, Eva, and I wasn't sure if it was Paulina or Alina. It, she is actually Alina, but, but when she gets adopted, they changed her name to Paulina. And they're just complex, wonderful kids who have just been through something that no child should go through and no child should have to experience what they are experiencing. How do you figure that out? Uh, you're an experienced documentary filmmaker. And as I've learned over the many years of speaking with filmmakers who do documentaries, there's an intuitive sense to them. And I'm just curious how you kind of landed on them. I think, first of all, you know, most of the kids there were were really like curious as to who me and Asat were. They thought it was a really welcome distraction, I think, uh, in a lot of ways. But then, of course, when you also present a camera, some of the kids, maybe, you know, it's not for them and they shy a little bit away and other kids come forward. Wow, this is interesting, you know. I don't want to force, you know, filming on anybody. So obviously I start maybe more looking at the kids that actually are curious as to who I am and what I'm doing there. And among those were, you know, Sasha, Alina, Eva and, and Kolya. And uh, it was different things that actually drew me to each one of them. With Eva, it was kind of like a sense that her eyes could both express utter joy but also deep uh, despair and sorrow. And sometimes there wouldn't be so long between those shifts. And then she was doing cartwheels all the time. And uh, that also became kind of almost symbolic of either she did it because she wanted to get so much happiness out of her body because she couldn't contain it. And it could also be almost like she was, you know, trying to, to, to make herself so tired that she wouldn't feel the sorrow of her life. 
So that's what attracted me to her. What drew me to Sasha was actually in the beginning that she looked very much like my cousin. (laughs) And also that when she was brought into Margarita's shelter, contrary to a lot of the kids there, she seemed very much at ease and almost curious as to her surroundings. She seemed like she had her own little world and she was very comfortable in that. So she wasn't crying. She was actually happy and interested in what was going on. But I also noticed she wasn't really reaching out of her bubble. She wasn't inviting anybody in to become friends with her. So that's a mix of, of you know, a strong child, but also there's something there that's, yeah, that was really interesting to me. Well, Simon, um, let me uh, just real quick. It seems to me, if I'm remembering this correctly, that Sasha came in and one of the things that she talked about was that she had been on the run or out of her house for a period of time. Was that, was there something in her story about her, her the being? Story, hmm? The story of Sasha is actually that she was left alone at home. She's only 10 at the moment right. or at that point in time. She was left several times for days at a time while the mom went uh, binge drinking. When the social workers actually found her, she was doing uh, fairly well, considering like she was making meals for herself. She was spending time doing what she wanted. The only thing that she didn't want uh, or that she wasn't doing was going to school. And that was actually what alerted the social workers to her situation. She's a very capable young child. She felt like an old soul in some way to be yeah. there. She seemed to be. But and, and with Sasha came like Alina uh, almost as a, as a present from, from heaven because that became the girl that she kind of picked out who, who she wanted to invite into her life and who she wants to be uh, friends with. Like she was attracted to her for I don't know what, you know, and those two developed such an explosive and such a weird like uh, uh, love-hate relationship yeah. that that was uh, so touching for me actually yeah that was really interesting to watch the way that they expressed their affection for one another was so childlike it, yeah. i mean just it was a really interesting thing to watch because it's hard it was sort of almost sexual but it wasn't there was to be honest i see it more like they're fighting constantly because they're so fond of each other but they haven't they haven't been told how to express yeah. affection yes. uh, in the in the correct way. So they do it in their fighting instead. I, I agree with that. I and and the the one boy yeah. that you focus on, yeah. Kolya, who is he has all the energy of a young boy and yeah. and all of the destructive impulses of somebody who's much older than he is. It's hard not to be fascinated by who he is because like he draws attention. He's one of those people who just have a lot of charisma and a lot of willpower and a lot of humor and a lot of acting out. And what really caught my eye in him was that duality that on one hand, he was acting the hardcore thug who was climbing the hierarchy of much older boys in the gang of the shelter, while at the same time, he was so careful and so loving and so uh, nurturing towards his two younger uh, siblings who was at the shelter with him. And that duality, I thought, was almost, yeah, it was magical in a lot of ways, if I can use that word. It's interesting to watch his arc by the end of the film. 
He seems to kind of go through all of the things that you just described and then comes out on the other side of it. There's something about where he was when the film ends that was very interesting. The issues that brought these kids there, the disruption in the social fabric of Ukraine, whether it be by alcoholism, unemployment, the war, the ongoing conflicts that were all a part of this. How do you assess their coping in this in crazy, um, very uncertain world that they live in? Well, first of all, I think it's very important to say that obviously I didn't assess that alone. Uh, I, from the very beginning, we we formed a very close partnership uh, with the caregivers and the, the psychologist and the civil administration. All through the film, we've been continuously discussing what scenes would be okay and how to for our sakes also to put the right certain amount of boundaries to the kids and and how to to show them the respect and the the the, the trust that they need also uh, so it's been in, in a very close uh, collaboration with with the with the amazing caregivers of the place and we've been doing it you know step by step uh, very slowly with the kids on a more you know uh, human aspect of it i think it's that I spend so much time with them and I'm really interested. I have kids the same age and I love hanging out with them. And I really like have, hanging out with these kids also. And I'm curious to their dreams and to their fears and their hopes and their stories in general, you know. I think that combined with, you know, very early on, we told them, if you don't want to be filmed, just walk away or show a, uh, show me your hand or say stop or something. And I, I will stop filming, you know. And when they would do that, obviously, I would stop showing them that I'm true to my word and that I actually mean what I say and I do what I say, I think creates a relationship where they feel that they can trust me and where I'm welcome more maybe as a friend or a support when the more raw emotional uh, scenes happens in their life as they inevitably must. I try not to be too greedy either about uh, scenes like this. So as soon as I feel that, okay, this is enough for me, you know, I might put down the camera and, and be a friend to them instead, you know. I want to remind our listeners we're speaking with the director of a incredible documentary film called A House Made of Splinters. That would be Simon Lorraine Wilmont. One of the tells for me, someone who's watched a lot of films, to gauge sort of the, the, the comfort of the, the people that you're filming, the, the kids you're filming, is rarely, if ever, do they look at the camera when they're in the midst of whatever they're doing, whether they're interacting with somebody and the, their friends or running around. And that for me, and it's just sort of from a filmmaking perspective, that level of comfort that they had, seemingly not conscious of the camera. How do you become unseen? You mentioned the comfort level the kids have with you, but yeah. is there anything that for filmmakers who are sort of looking to do this kind of a documentary film, what what are the sort of things that you should try to do to not be seen? You should be patient and you should be prepared <laughs> to face a lot of obstacles. But what you really have to do is constantly uh, question yourself whether or not the kids are acting by their own will, you know, or are, are you wanting them to do something or are they wanting to do something themselves? Because what I quickly learned during the recent films was you can't get kids to do something that they don't want to do and still, you know, make it 
real in some kind of way, you know. But the beauty of kids is also that if it's something that they're really into or that something that has an emotional effect on them, either happy or sad, it's like reading a good book. You forget your surroundings, but you go for what is in your will, so to speak. You follow your own will. I don't know if I'm making really much sense, but oh, I a little bit difficult to explain in English. <laughs> well, you see it in the film. Another thing about this film is, by the way, the film is called A House Made of Splinters. The contrast between the interaction in a group of boys and the interaction with a group of young women and how very different it is, how cooperative women are when they they tend to play together in a group activity they're dancing together they're blowing bubbles together then you contrast that with the the boys and they're punching things and they're running around and they're punching each other it's just a, i i mean i know it's developmental i know it's just sort of a it's the socialization part of 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 growing up but it's it's just so stark to see it in this film but Mike, Mike, I see it kind of like as the same thing, but just with different uh, parameters, so to speak. In both scenes, it's a question of deciding I have hierarchy in the group. And the dancing, although it seems like they're having, you know, a fun, is also a way of establishing your order in, yes. in that hierarchy. Yes. As with the boys, it's just fighting instead, but it's the scenes are, are telling the same, actually. That's true. How's that house doing today? You said earlier, they're they're actually, they've been taken over yeah. by persons, right? Uh, we had two psychologists with specialities in kids' trauma, local psychologists, be there for the kids in the house after we shot uh, the film and for as long as they needed somebody they could talk to. And one of these psychologists was actually there by coincidence of the 24th of February. Oh. And she quickly actually called us and said that the civil administration acted really fast and put Olga on a train with the, with the kids and drove them to the west of Ukraine and some even into Europe. Oh. So the kids are in relative safe places, the many that we have been able to account for. And so are the staff now. But the Lysychansk itself has been one of the most contested cities of the war. And now it's on the Russian-controlled sides uh, of the war, but not without heavy fighting. And I met Margarita roughly one uh, month ago in Kiev, and she told me that friends of hers who are still staying in Lysychansk had told her that a missile had hit the roof of the shelter's main living room and struck down through the roof into the living room, but didn't explode. So now, as she told me, it's like an, almost like an exclamation point of a missile sticking up the top of the roof. So at the moment, the shelter is not working, no. There's just so much trauma. Yeah, it's awful. Well, what kind of an impact has this had on you? You know, as you mentioned, your kids, you know, they're near the age of, or the same age as some of these kids are. Yeah. What's been your takeaway just from stepping back from a, as a filmmaker, just as, as a father? Well, I hug them a lot more, but I might also have become a little bit more strict in getting them or trying to get them to realize, you know, how privileged they are and how much they have to be thankful for. And in this case, I'm not talking about myself, but maybe more that they have a roof over their heads and they have an everyday life that is not so much full of troubles, bigger, you know, consequences. 
Well, the war grinds on. I think here in the West, here in the United States, it's a little bit off our radar as opposed to when it started. I know that most people, when you when you talk about what's going on in Ukraine, are aware of the general outline of the where the war is. But my thoughts are with everyone in Ukraine and the the level of atrocities that are being perpetrated now on those people is unspeakable and hopefully will someday be accountable for their actions. I the people who are will. doing that. I think they will be. Well, thank you. Thank you, Simon, Lorraine, Wilmont. Thank you so very much for your work, for particularly for a house made of splinters and the distant barking of dogs and all the best to you moving forward. I, I look forward to hopefully another conversation someday. So thank you. Yeah, I, I would absolutely always be up for that, Mike. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 